0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to Nomads Past and Present, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Professor Chris Atwood. Chris is Professor of Mongolian and Chinese Frontier and Ethnic History and Chair of the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations at the University of Pennsylvania where he teaches and conducts research on a wide variety of topics pertaining to Mongol history, culture, politics, and religion. Most recently, he published his new translation of the medieval epic, The Secret History of the Mongols, which is what we'll be talking about today. So thank you so much, Chris, for joining me.
0: Thank you, it's a pleasure.
1: So first, just to locate listeners in the topic of our conversation, could you offer a very brief overview of the contents of the secret history of the Mongols? Basically, what is it? How would you describe it in a couple sentences uh, to somebody who is not familiar with it already? And maybe just a little bit about what we know about when and by whom it was written or might have been written.
0: Great. Um, it uh, yeah, sure. It's uh, Secrets of the Mongols is the the major source that we have on the life of Chinggis, also known as Genghis. Although he's not that the preferred Mongolian way to say it is Chinggis. Uh, Genghis is based on a bit of a misunderstanding. So uh, it's the primary source we have on the rise of the Mongols, Mongol Empire. Uh, Chinggis Khan, and goes through the reign of his son, Okade, um, and ends roughly around, you could say, around 1240. Uh, and so, as the Mongol Empire has kind of reached uh, uh, pretty much close to its sort of uh, maximum size, um, although there will be more... Um, uh, Conquest later under his grand uh, Chinggis Khan's grandson Kublai, and so on. Um, the text is anonymous, uh, and it's dated in a funny way. It's dated to the year of the mouse, um, so in the twelve-year animal cycle. So, as you can figure out, uh, unless we know exactly which twelve years that in, that's a little bit of a puzzle uh, for various reasons, which I talk a little bit about in the introduction to my um, to my translation. I'm a believer in the 1252 theory of the Year of the Mouse. That's to say that it was written in 1252, which would put it about 25 years after the death of Genghis Khan and about 11 years, 11, 12 years after the latest events in it. Um, because there's actually a little bit of sort of foreshadowing of future events that come up. So that's the basic introduction to it. It's mostly in prose, um, but it has a lot of poetic passages. Um, and, um, yeah, so that's, uh, your basic short introduction to the secret history of the Mongols.
1: Great. Uh, and so you said it's the primary source, uh, for the kind of rise of Genghis Khan and the earliest Mongol conquests. Why is that? Why is it so, why is it the kind of, or text or the sort of most used, I hesitate to say kind of most reliable because I'm sure that can be sort of questioned, but why is it kind of the most commonly referred to source for Mongol history?
0: There's a couple of reasons for this. The first reason is that it's the only one of the known histories of the Mongol Empire that was preserved in the original Mongolian language. Um, So... Uh, It definitely uh, has also a kind of richness of the Mongolian language, which most of the other sources don't have. There were, in fact, a lot of other Mongolian sources written, but because of the sort of fall of the Mongol Empire... They have been preserved for us, mostly in Chinese or Persian translation. So they give you a lot of the good information uh, that can be uh, found there. But uh, literarily and in terms of sort of giving you some of the nuances of the language, those Persian and Chinese translations are, are, are not as... Um, not as as revealing as the Secretist of the Mongols, which is preserved in Mongolia. The other thing about it is that in terms of being a narrative history that really takes us from the ancestry of Chinggis Khan, the Secretist of the Mongols actually starts with a very long genealogy that goes back into distant mythical time. Um, but it takes us from that genealogy all the way up through you know, the, the actual expansion of the empire, the conquest of places like, uh, you know, uh, Beijing, Kaifeng, uh, Kiev, uh, Baghdad, so on and so forth. Uh, in, as, a, as a single narrative history, The Secrets of the Mongols is the earliest. Uh, we do have some other earlier sources that are in Chinese, um, which some of which I also translated in the, if I make a plug for my book, The Rise of the Mongols, five Chinese sources. Some of those are earlier than The Secrets of the Mongols, but they're not really connected narrative histories. Uh, we also have... Some uh, Persian histories, a f- very famous one, Giovanni's history of uh, uh, history of the world conqueror, is written just a few years after the secrets of the Mongols. But again, it's it's very much focused on the on the Persian side. Um, so if we take a history that is centered on Mongolia sort of views both the, sort of the Chinese eastern side of the Mongol Empire and the... Iranian, Persian, western side of the Mongol Empire, views them evenly, the secrets of the Mongols is definitely the earliest. And um, so it's really the earliest complete narrative history of the Mongol Empire. And I think that's the the other reason that makes it uh, particularly influential. I should also say it was read and used by later historians, either directly or indirectly. So it kind of established a lot of the narrative framework for viewing the Mongol Empire.
1: And so what do we know about the original context or original audience for which it was written? Um, You know, was it intended to be sort of recited and heard orally? Would it originally have been written down and transmitted that way or both?
0: yeah it was okay so the 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 final passage there's at the end of the book is what's called a colophon which is a term that we use a lot of times in um medieval uh language and literature uh and uh that gives the, it's sort of like, it's a little like the, the copyright information at, at the uh, at the front of a book in a modern publishing system. In a colophon, it's at the end of a book. It just tells you where and when it was written down and uh, so on. So I'm just going to read it right now. At the moment when the great Kodaltai was assembling in the Roebuck moon of the year of the mouse and the hordes had been pitched at the seven hills of Kudur Isle on the hairland between Sulganchuk and, blank, there's a missing word there, the writing was finished. So that's that's what it said. Now, the, uh, to explain that a little bit, uh, the great Qudeltai, um the great Qudeltai was this big meeting that would happen in uh, uh, the Mongol Empire. Um, they were periodic assemblies. Um, uh, this is something that there's a little bit of, um, something of a debate among scholars. I think the evidence is very strong that actually a, Qudeltai, a great kurultai was simply any kurultai, or assembly in which the emperor was present, and that would normally take place every summer. So every summer, in fact, there would be a great kurultai. Some people have, have argued that a great kurultai is only for exceptional events, like for crowning a new emperor. But I think the evidence um, speaks against that. So this great Kudeltai, um is a, a, a assembly at which the emperor is present, and that was when this was finished. Um, that. Roebuck Moon. They sort of, the they months of the year were sort of numbered according to uh, uh, sort of events that happened. I guess Roebucks were, were, were mating at that time, perhaps. Um, but that was probably, uh, again, Roebuck Moon of the year of the mouse um, would be August 1252, roughly. Um, so that is presented at a quartal at an assembly. And what we know from other sources on the empire is that the assemblies had kind of different types of sessions. In some sessions, they would be held in these very large, enormous kind of uh, tents or sort of palaces. I mean, they, you have know, to think, some of them were sort of just solely for assemblies. Some of them were more in the sort of these sort of mobile palace tents. But in any case, they, they were very large and they could help hold hundreds of people. Uh, and um, these the key assemblies were held with only the the elite of the empire present, and so we have a description of the assembly that enthroned Chinggis Khan's son Ogedei, and it describes who was there quite uh, quite nicely. It says basically the uh, the uh, the members of the imperial family, which would be basically Chinggis Khan's descendants, uh, his brother's descendants. And this would include both male and female, so these sons and grandsons and, and daughters and granddaughters. Also, everybody who married into the family. Uh, Mongols practiced exogamy, so all of the, uh, um, the, the, the women of the Mongol Empire had to uh, – the women of the imperial family had to marry non-imperial family men and vice versa. Um, so the daughters were, uh, the, the daughters and their sons in laws were also present. And finally, um, the, uh, and also the wives of the commander. So we also know that there was, everything was done very symmetrically. For every male on the right hand of the ruler, there would be his wife on the left hand side. And for every daughter of the ruler, there would be for every a female descendant of the ruler, there would be her husband would be on the right-hand side. So they had that kind of they would distinguish the seating by gender, so men on the right and women on the left. The um, and then finally there were the, the commanders of a thousand. Genghis Khan had organized his empire into into this so famous decimal organization, five, tens, hundreds, and thousands. In ten thousands, and was those, but the key unit was the uh, un, uh, commander of a thousand, and that was a hereditary position. Once he appointed you to commander of a thousand, that would descend in, hereditarily in your line. So this was kind of the new aristocracy of the empire. So that was the core audience of a Quiddaltai, and that was the core audience of the secretist of the Mongols. Um, so other people like. You know, uh, people from papal envoys to Korean kings, you know, all these other people in the Mongol empire they would be there, but they wouldn't be allowed on the into the secret sessions. So that's why it's a secret history of the Mongols, because the only people who would be listening to it were that core group of the imperial family, those who had married into the imperial family, and the commanders of a thousand and their descendants. Um, so that was the... Um, the core evidence. One thing that's also important about The, the Secretist of as I mentioned, it was written in prose. Um, and so it was certainly written. Um, and this is something that uh, is, it, it kind of has an epic feel about it. It's been uh, called an epic chronicle, but I think that that impression is somewhat misleading. Um, the uh, Because the, one thing we find, and this is something where of my academic research has sort of informed my translation, is that there's actually a lot of verbatim citation from previously existing written sources in The Secrets to the Mongols, as well as a fair amount of poetry, which is formally at least uh, quite similar to Mongolian narrative poetry as far as we know it, although uh, actually Mongolian epics in the true sense, we don't ha- actually have any evidence of them, uh, we, we, the earliest recorded ones are from the 18th century, so much later. But so it's a very interesting mix of, of, of citations from written works and also then poetry. Um, so it was, I would assume it was probably uh, recited uh, to the audience. Um, although, you know, M- Mongolian literacy was developing uh, at the time and was, uh, we know that the Mongol, um, uh Uh, Khans were Ogaday and and his brothers and nephews and sons. They were all literate um, in uh, the uh, training in reading and writing was something. Chinggis Khan himself was probably not literate, um, but he made sure that all of his sons and grandsons and probably many of his daughters and granddaughters were literate. They would be given tutorials um, by various figures um, uh, from the surrounding peoples as well as uh, particularly the um, scribal class.
1: And so, you know, even though um, originally it might only, the text might only have been known to members of the Kurultai and to the kind of immediate elite of the Mongol Empire, obviously it didn't remain that way for very long. And as you said, it was cited and referenced and used by other historians contemporaneously. So what do we know about how it sort of filtered out beyond the how it was. How is it transmitted um, or accessed by later or kind of contemporaneous historians?
0: Uh, that's a great question. The, the beginning of it uh, probably happened about, so the, the Secrets of the Mongols was first presented, uh, according to the scenario, uh, in 1252, in the year of the mouse, about... 25 years after that. So it's interesting. It's always this sort of jump. So Chinggis Khan dies in 1227. 25 years later, the Secrets of the Mongols is written. About 25 years after that, uh, Chinggis Khan's grandson, Kublai Khan, who is ruling in um, the, what's now Beijing and the city that he was calling Daidu, um, he wants – the Secrets of the Mongols is still secret, but he wants to have something that's kind of based on it but that would be more public, and therefore he can And he therefore he's going to have to expurgate some of the, some of the more um, um, uh, controversial bits, we can call them. So those they have the naughty bits have to be taken out, uh, but sort of the public record has to be changed. He also wanted to add in some other Mongolian sources and and clean up the chronology a bit. The Secret History of the Mongols has an interesting, it's a somewhat lax chronological approach. Um, so he needed to clean that. So he then produced uh, something which uh, survives in a Chinese translation and in a Persian paraphrase, sort of expanded paraphrase. Um, and that work, which we can call the authentic chronicle of Chinggis Khan, which the Chinese version of it would be Taizu um, Shilu. So again, the only was survived is in the Chinese. Um, and the, but we also have, a, it was also used by the famous Persian historian of the Mongol Empire, Rashiduddin, around 1304. So th- it was actually through that conduit that the basic narrative framework of the secretists to the Mongols kind of was sort of distributed to the broader population. We do know it probably was also, uh, uh, some historians talk about, like Rashiduddin himself talks about there are these histories of the, that the the historians of the Mongols have and they say this, or they say that it's like, it's almost like people were reading it to him and gave him sort of oral sort of summaries of the kind of information. And the secrets of the Mongols may have sort of distributed that way. But during the time of the Mongol empire, the actual text itself appears to have remained basically secret. It was only after the fall of the Mongol empire um, in um, what, in let me say the fall of the Mongol Empire, we usually mean it's 1368. The Mongol Empire, the Great Khan in what is now uh, Beijing, got kicked out, and he fled back to Mongolia, and the new Ming Dynasty, which is an ethnic Chinese dynasty, took power. At that point, um, somewhere around that point, the Ming Dynasty had found a text of this Mongolian, and they thought this was really interesting. They also needed to train their interpreters and things like that to deal with the Mongols north of the border. So they took this Mongolian language text and transcribed it with Chinese characters, not paying attention to the meaning, but just according to the sound, syllable by syllable. It's like, what a, what a lot of work. Um, and that took place around 1385. Um, and so from that, and then that got printed in Chinese. They sort of printed it, not so much for the broad masses to use because it was kind of a weird text for a Chinese to read. And um, they did have, each word had like the, the, the Mongolian pronunciation syllable by syllable and then to the, um, to the side of it, it would have what it meant in Chinese. But So the grammar was all Mongolian grammar. So and then it had like Chinese summaries. So that text was block printed probably for use by these interpreters who would sort of, you know, they would um, do sort of official, uh, official use for them. And that was preserved into the 18th, 19th century when scholars began to study it. Another version of the text also was probably carried back into Mongolia. It seems to have circulated in Mongolia or maybe also, remember there was also still, even after the Mongol empire, there were still a lot of Mongolian speakers in what's now now Beijing. Um, They were people who had been there at the time of the Mongol empire and they, not all of them went back to Mongolia. So they're still there. So, um, We're not sure exactly where it was preserved, but there was another Mongolian text in the Mongolian script, and that eventually, in the 1660s, got incorporated into a Mongolian chronicle, about two-thirds of the text got sort of incorporated into a later Mongolian chronicle that had also a lot of other legendary elements, also kind of like translations of Buddhist history from Tibetan. It was a real grab bag. So fortunately, into that grab bag, they threw two-thirds of the text of the secrets to the Mongols. So we ended up, uh, when we study the secrets to the Mongols, there are therefore three sources that we can use. First of all, we have that version under Kublai Khan that was um, uh, that was sort of you could say bowdlerized, a sort of expurgated version of the secrets of the Mongols, and, but also it also has some interesting it, a, a new element that new elements. That's this authentic chronicle of Chinggis Khan. So that's one uh, source that we use that is found in Chinese and Persian translation. Then we have the two editions. Or recensions, you can call them using a technical term. Two recensions of the Secret History of the Mongols: one being the one transcribed into Chinese characters by sound, with glosses, and the other being the one that was transmitted in Mongolia. Uh, about two thirds of the text translated in Mongolia and attached into this Mongolian chronicle. So that's how it was. That's how we know about it today. And
1: so, uh, given that the text was originally intended to be secret, Uh, is there a sense in the text regardless that the author was maybe aware of or was thinking about the fact that the text could at some point be accessible or would be used by people in the future? Is there a kind of looking to or speaking to people down the line, visible within the text? You know, like I think when, when we think about sort of more kind of canonical uh, historical chronicles like Herodotus's or Ibn Khaldun's and figures like that. There's very clearly a writing to the future as well as to kind of the present moment. Is that kind of is that sort of aim visible within the secret history of the Mongols as well? Or is it really more written to kind of very contemporary present kind of political and social needs?
0: That's a really interesting question. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I think there are, um, I think I, I want to say the answer is yes. And I think maybe the answer is yes. Uh, but it is, it, it's an, a really interesting mixture. Um, certainly the historian, uh, the person who wrote this has a sense that there are, are – uh, seems to have a sense that there are uh, particular events or things that need to be explained in Mongolian history. And as I point out in the introduction, there's a kind of phrase um, that comes up at the end of certain sections. And it sort of says, um, you know, or such and such that was the way in which such and such happened. That was the, that, and, um, and it's, it's put in kind of interesting family history ways. Like, so how did Chinggis Khan's mother first marry her father? Um, It turns out that was through a kind of a capture. Um, How, what, and there's also like, how did it, the, the, the Yurken, which was this sort of rival house that was opposed to Chinggis Khan. How did they have such a sort of, um, genealogical grab bag of members no, sort of not, the, there, there was a reason so it, it, it comes in at the point when it's kind of explaining things that from context seem to have been, it sounds like that what it's saying is this is some problem that you often, you know, you a little Mongol kid in the 1240s growing up and taking your history classes. You couldn't quite figure that one out. And so now the secret historian's going to figure it out for you. Uh, so it kind of has that sense. Um, and so there's certainly the sense of an ongoing historical conversation um, that predates the secret history. As I mentioned, the secret history also makes use of pre-existing uh, written sources, uh, some of which were narrative, although Probably none of them had the scope of the Secretists of the Mongols. It's also looking forward to the, um, it, it kind of has a vision of the empire's history as a whole. As I said, it was written in 1252, and that's an important date because in 1251, one of the families of Chinggis Khan's sons, he had four main sons, and each one of them established a kind of a, a imperial line within a sort of a subfamily within the overall imperial family. So, in 1251, the subfamily of descendants of his fourth son Tolui seized power from the descendants of Chinggis Khan's third son Okade. Third, the third son Okade, had previously been the ruling family, but then the fourth son um, uh, Tolui, the, uh, his son Monke Khan, was. Genghis Khan's grandson, um, he sees power from the other grandsons of the other house of the family. And there's a lot of things in the Secrets of the Mongols that kind of look forward to that and um, uh, give that sort of picture of why this is going to be necessary. So that's so it's it's definitely looking towards past historical issues. It's also looking forward to Why it is that the empire kind of lost its way under Okadei, it's kind of, he's he's not seen as a bad emperor entirely, but he's kind of mixed. It it ends with this very odd, uh, four good things he did, four bad things he did, um, uh, kind of testament from Chinggis Khan's son Okadei. And you can kind of see that this is sort of leading up to a real issue in which if Ogedei is not so good, what if he has really bad sons? Um, and you know, and, and, and one of his Ogaday's sons, who is the third emperor, actually shows up in the Secrets of the Mongols, and he's a really bad character. Um, so, sort of, it's sort of giving him before he became emperor, he was a bad egg already. Um, so, um, um, you can sort of see that that's going to become a problem, and so that's why in twelve fifty one, we're going to need. The family of Tolui, who's always very good and self-sacrificing and a rogue, needs to seize power. At the same time, I, I you know, I can't really think point to a specific passage which it seems to be kind of for the ages. But the the very scope of the Secret is of the Mongols, the fact that it is unique among all of these earlier sources, and sort of going back to the very distant past, and and sort of taking that rise of the Mongol lineage through many, many generations, very long genealogy with stories attached that sort of begins the work. I mean, it, 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 I think it. The, the distant past rooting of it creates also a sense that this empire is going to last for quite a while. Um, and it, in that sense, gives a also a kind of picture of how do you renew the empire if, how do you renew this Ruling family, if something has gone wrong, and that sort of happens several times in the course of it, uh, we see these sort of problems between brothers. Brothers are fighting each other. How do we how do we resolve that? How do we move beyond that to sort of um, um, reestablish the original vigor of the empire? And that's, I think, the message that the Secret Historian wants the future generations to be to be a future generation of Mongols to be. Um, To be
1: hearing. And do we have a sense of how common this kind of literary production would have been among the Mongols? You know, I think when we look to other nomadic communities, we very often find sort of professional poets or storytellers or people who kind of fulfill this function of maintaining and transmitting the sort of histories and traditions of that community. Would there have been a kind of corollary to that among the Mongols an almost kind of professional historian and, like, court reciter? Is that who we can imagine maybe the secret historian as having been? Or would it have been maybe more realistically just sort of a member of the elite who told this story to members of the other elite in a more sort of informal way?
0: Um, I think... you know, I think there almost certainly was. There's a few passages uh, in The Secretist of the Mongols that uh, where linguistically it reflects the um, – it has passages that we can see in, um, again, these later epics. So as I mentioned, in the they, in the in 18th century, uh, ethnographers or uh, 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 some people in the Russian Empire were sort of explorers and so on – they note the existence and they actually record some of the texts that, of epics that were sung by the Mongols, uh, and that epic tradition uh, we saw something called the Jangar tradition, which is um, uh, uh, which is among the Kalmuk Kalmuk's of uh, the far westernmost Mongols. And Sagler Bukdaeva has just made a wonderful translation of the uh, of the Jangar epic in, in a, uh, one of the most uh, uh, in, in one of its that was sung uh, in the early 20th century, uh, early 20th century version of that. So, um, and, and so that tradition existed. And it, I would say it it seems to, we see, I would say it probably existed earlier on in uh, going back into the 13th century and so on. One of the interesting things about it though, is that the Mongolian epic tradition um, doesn't, it doesn't use historical characters, um, unlike say the Greek or the the old French historical tradition, where at least we can speculate that maybe Agamemnon was a real historical king or Roland and Charlemagne they appear in the song of Roland and so on. Um, uh, in Mongolian epics, the, the, the figures are not historical, uh, but they do certainly give you a kind of a narrative template of how to tell a story, um, and um, And there's interesting phrases that um, are, can be found in the secrets of the Mongols that reflect that. So uh, at one point uh, when Chinggis Khan um, he's been challenged for rule by this shaman figure, Tiptinger, and, he, and Tiptinger's father, father Munklik, has been a very close intimate of Chinggis Khan's. And so this is kind of a uh, you know the uh, a challenge that comes from within the most intimately associated family associates of Chinggis Khan. So and eventually Chinggis Khan lets his younger brother uh, uh, Temuke Ochigan, kill in through a very interesting sort of way of of uh, 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 through a very clever sort of slightly underhanded way. But then it says. When he heard that his son had been killed, Father Munklick understood and shed tears, saying, from when the brown earth was no more than a bit of dirt, from when the broad sea was no more than a creek, I was a friend of the Khan. So brown earth was no more than a bit of dirt. Uh, the broad sea was no more than a creek. That's exactly a phrase that is used in Mongolian epics to say um, once upon a time. It gives you that way distant past. So this, the secretist in Mongols is certainly using that kind of epic traditions. At the same time, though, precise as you see precise in that passage, it's it's, it's aware of the epic traditions, but it's also subverting them. Um, and it's subverting them in the sense of Mongolian epics, like those of the, the Turkic tradition, the Kyrgyz tradition, and like those of the Greek. And it really, I think it's a kind of universal maybe sort of defining feature of epics, that athletic competitions are seen as the guarantor of truth. So for those of you familiar with, say, the Odyssey, Odysseus is disguised uh, when he comes back and he finds the suitors are harassing Penelope and they want to marry her. Uh, He comes back, he's disguised up until the point where they put a bow in his hands, and then he reveals himself. I'm the hero, and he kills all the suitors. Um, and, th- and there's actually interesting enough in later Mongolian historiography that gets kind of epica- epicalized, like in the uh, the precious summary, which has also been recently translated by Johann Helverskog. In that, we see in later versions, we have like Chinggis Khan's brothers are sort of saying, why does Chinggis Khan get all the rule? Why does he get to do this? Why is he always – why does he get all the good stuff? And then um, Chinggis Khan disguises himself as an old man with a bow – and he gives a bow to his brothers and asks the bow, uh, asks the brothers, "Can you string this bow? Can you fire it?" And they can't. But then the old man does, and he shows, "I'm Chinggis Khan. I, you know, this is why I get all the rules because I'm be- better than you." So that's that's very epic. But in the secrets of the Mongols, there are two athletic competitions, and both of them are rigged. The first one happens when uh, Buche, the um, uh, 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 a member of this rival Yurken house among the Mongols, uh, sort of sort of Chinggis Khan's distant cousins, uh, and and in that he Buribucha is um, uh, had had previously had a altercation with Chinggis Khan's younger half brother Bilgirte, and he sort of cut his, cut his shoulder actually. Um, actually, I have to say, maybe he's younger half brother. We always think of him as younger because he's junior, but he may actually be older. But uh, um, uh, that does maybe – I don't think anybody actually knows um, um, that date. But it's it's a, a very interesting. Um, uh, in, in so then later on, there is this um, there is this um, uh, issue, and um, so I'll just read the passage here. One day, Chinggis Khan said, "Let's have Buddha the Brawny." But Bukhut, I call him Buri Bukhet. That's the Mongolian word for Bukhut. It's like means wrestler. It's so a big guy. So Chinggis Khan, that's how I translated booty the Brawny. So Chinggis Khan said, let's have Buri the Brawny and Bilgatay wrestle. Buri the Brawny was one of the Yurkin. Before, Buri the Brawny would seize Bilgatay with a hand on one side and push with his other foot and make him fall, pushing him down without letting him move. Buri the Brawny was the Brawniest in the kingdom. And then Bilgatay and Buri the Brawny were made to wrestle. Budi the Brawny, a man who could not be beaten, took a fall for him. Bilgatay, unable to pin him, held him by the shoulders and got onto his butt. Bilgatay looked back, and just as he looked at Chinggis Khan, the Khan bit his lower lip. Bilgatay understood and moved up on his back, pulled the two sides of his collar in a firm crosswise grip, and put his knee on his spine until it cracked. Budi the Brawny knew his spine was broken and said, I would not have been beaten by Bilgutei. I was afraid of the Khan and took the fall, hesitating and lost my life. Just then he died. Having snapped his spine asunder, Bilgutei dragged him off and threw him away. So, Bertie thought, if I just give in and let Genghis Khan's brother beat me, I'll save my life. But it didn't happen that way. Um, so, this is, and the same thing happens later with that Teptinger shaman guy they're having a fight, and um, uh, Tip Tinger had um, kind of been um, sort of abusive towards Chinggis Khan's brothers. And he actually kind of also using sort of telling Chinggis Khan, you know, your brother, one of your brothers is maybe going Hassar, is named Hassar, he's going to be maybe a, a threat to your kingdom, so on and so forth. But he, he, he starts attacking Chinggis Khan's brothers. And then there's a scene in the court where they're, you know, they start fighting each other and then Chinggis Khan says, take it outside guys, basically. And, but Chinggis Khan's younger brother, Temeka had already stationed three guys outside. So they take it outside to fight it out like a man. And as soon as Tiptinger goes out there, these three guys jump on him and kill him and uh, probably snap his back the same way. Uh, And so, in the secrets of the Mongols, athletic contrasts do not do not reveal truth. They are they are fraudulent. Um, so, and that's kind of in a sense. I mean, and that's right in the kind of context, which is, I mean, wrestling is one of the big sports in Mongolia. And to show two wrestling matches, and both of them have be fraudulent, um, is is kind of it's it's. It's subversive of the epic uh, tradition. So, the secretist of the Mongols is 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 in a sense, yes, it is written with an awareness of the epic tradition, but it's also kind of subverting it uh, and putting out, I think, a um, a an idea about rule which is much more, you could say, ironic, covert, much more, much less about. You know, speaking your mind and being very forthright, and much more about sort of—it's very interesting when Chinggis Khan, much more about un-messages that are unspoken. It's very interesting in that passage I read about Budi the Brawny. Uh, Belgutai—he—he he needs he, he needs—he looks to his half brother Chinggis to. What do I do now? i got got—I've got him on the ground. What do I do now? And he looks in Chinggis Khan. He bites his lower lip. No words are spoken, but Bilgutai gets it. Um, so, as people have pointed out in, in epics, there's a tendency towards, you know, the, the you know, Achilles or uh, Ma- in the, the uh, Manas or some of Jolai, some of these great epic heroes um, from the, in the Central Asian Kyrgyz tradition. They, they they're always talking. And they're always saying things. In a sense, there people have talked about the exteriority of epics. Uh, epics are epic personalities are people who, who say what they think. And therefore, by recording their speech, you find out what they're thinking. In the Secrets of the Mongols, there's a lot of talking. But the key things are never said. The key things are never actually made clear through speech. You just kind of have to get them through. Pay attention to what they do, not to what they say. Uh, so that's a kind of... So the Secretist of the Mongols has this very interesting relationship to ep- the epic tradition. Um, at the same time, it is also... Um, as I mentioned, it's part of a, um, there was a written tradition that was going on in the secretist of the Mughals times. As I mentioned, probably from around the 1230s onwards, in the reign of Okade, Chinggis Khan's son, people began to write biographies. And these were very important because the biographies would talk about how your father, maybe you or your father, your great-grandfather, probably not my grandfather at the most, um, had participated in helping found the empire. And therefore that gave you um, claim to a certain number of subjects, claim to a certain kind of uh, regular payments from the, um, uh, from the imperial taxes that would come to you as gifts from the emperor, from the Khan and so on. So there was really important to get that down in writing. And we have instances in the 1230s where uh, uh Okade would look to some of these biographies and say, "Hey, look! It says that guy X had bigger achievements than you did, and so guy and, and yet he's been guy X has been assigned less subject people than you have. I'm going to I'm going to boost your stuff and cut down their stuff to make you even." So people would use these biographies to actually um, uh, to uh, uh, change the amount of of, of privileges they would have so obviously you can, once you once people see that happening then they got to get this stuff written down ASAP. sap um, so the um, biographies that were be written we also have some interesting um, kind of early histories but you know there so there was a fair amount of being written um again I think more than we realized because almost all of it has survived only in Chinese and Persian translations they didn't survive in Mongolia although we also have some we have some fragmentary ones that have been found in manuscripts. but still I think one of the striking things is that the secret historian does seem to be a bit of a, a bit of a genius um, and uh, this there doesn't seem to be something of that same scope in the Mongolian uh, pre, preceding Mongolian or contemporary Mongolian literary tradition um, until after the secret historian um, puts um, puts it all down in one big story.
1: Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Um, what you said about how so much of the important moments of the text are kind of implicit or are the things that are unspoken—I think—totally went over my head when I was uh, reading it. So I, that just totally changed my perception uh, of the text. It's really interesting. Um, I, you know, we've been talking about how the, se- the secret history in a lot of ways kind of sets out to define Mongol identity at this moment in time and to kind of define sort of legitimize, you know, the Chinggisid empire, but there are also these really interesting or what I thought were really interesting moments in the text where that identity is defined in opposition to other peoples around the Mongols. You know, there are references to the Tatars um, and the Chinese and what are, what you call in your translation, the forest folk. Uh, And I'm really interested in how those kind of, outsiders uh, to the Mongols or the peoples who are kind of against and around the Mongols. How are those kind of other groups portrayed in the secret
0: history? Well, right. So it's really interesting. So for example, the forest folk, um, there's these interesting pictures of forests and the secret historian really seems to have um, um, not really liked forests very much. And this appears to be actually reflecting um, uh, we have other passages where this is um, uh, where this is reflected. One of the one a famous passage about it is one where uh, Chinggis Khan is um, he's, he's at Temujin at this point, um, and he is. Um, let's see if I, um, yeah, so he's. Um, um, uh, 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 up and uh, going through the sort of um, the, the mountains. And he talks about uh, going into a place that was so um, uh, uh, so narrow, even a, a glutted, so in between trees that were so grown so thickly, even a glutted snake could not get through them. And that phrase actually appears later in a Persian history. They're talking about some forest in the Caucasus and they say the Mongols came up to this forest and it was like so so thickly grown a glutted snake could not get through it. And it's exactly the same metaphor. And I'm sure that comes into the Persian history again. They're quoting from a Mongolian source. So whenever the, this is what Mongols say when they have really thick forests. Um, but, you know, I've been in the forests of Mongolia and they're not that thick. Actually, I think forests oftentimes call them understocked. <laughs> that is to say, they're not really um, they're, It's not like it's not like the Olympic National Forest in Washington uh, state. Um, you know, it's like or some of the, it's not like the amazon um so but it seems that the the secret historian was used to you know the broad step and, and going out and having being able to see for miles and so even a little bit of forest was kind of really bothered them um and of course it's also some sense of of the forest are sort of dangerous some some key people like borgold who was one of genghis khan's uh um great captains. uh was very uh, beloved. He like dies um, and they're, they're sort of cutting their way through this um, this forest. Let me see if I can pull up that one. Um, pull up that. Um, yeah, so they, 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 uh, Borogol has been killed and so now Chinggis Khan has to send out this guy called uh, Durbe the Fierce, Durbe Dokshin. um And he is this sort of hyper-disciplinarian So Chinggis Khan says to him, instead he appointed Durbe the Fierce of the Durbin, decreeing, marshal the soldiers sternly, pray to eternal heaven, and take on the challenge to subdue the Tomat. The Tomat is one of these forest folk. So once Durbe had marshaled the soldiers, he first made empty feigns at the passes and paths where the army might go, in which the scouts might be guarding, so kind of like um, decoys. But he issued ordinances for the soldiers to go along trails made by bison as for the people numbered in the army, each man was made to bear blows of ten switches of lash, if his heart failed. They were to be trained at the axe, ad saw, and chisel, and at men's weapons, and they were to hack and saw down the trees, standing in the trails, along the trails made by bison. When they had made a road and gone up into the mountains, they suddenly came down through the smoke holes of the Tumut folk, plundering them while they were seated at a feast. So you get this, you know, they're like they're to see their way through forests to get at these forest folk. Um, so that's definitely a kind of uh, a statement about how the steppe Mongols viewed um, the forest folk. There's another funny also passage, which I really like, where the Naaman, um these are the, in the west. So sort of in central Mongolia and in western Mongolia at this time, there were two relatively large scale conquests. And, a large scale. Excuse me. There were two relatively large scale kingdoms, and it was really important for Chinggis Khan to conquer those kingdoms, and by doing so, he could kind of unify Mongolia. But those kingdoms looked toward Chinggis Khan had risen in the eastern part of Mongolia, and those kingdoms they looked on the Mongols in the east as kind of like really, um, really kind of, of uh, un, unpleasant. Um, and so, there's a very famous, uh, a very wonderful passage where. The wife, the um, the empress of the Naman, talks about how um, she talks about how the um, um, the um, uh, the um, is, so the, she's a, it's she talks about the Mongols, and so we see the Mongols. It's kind of one of these interesting passages where a Mongol writer seems to be. Enjoying the disgust that the Mongols would raise in these other super civilized peoples, the Naiman. So, and and so the, the Gurubasu, uh, who has an interesting later career in Mongolian folklore, um, she is telling her um, well, soldiers. she's actually a, there's a it, he's telling her um, husband Tian Khan about what to do with the Mongols. His stepmother Gurubasu said. What would you do with them? The Mongol folk have an evil odor, and their clothes have dark stains. Keep them far away. Maybe bring in the noblest of their daughters and daughters-in-laws. Wash their hands, and maybe they might be set to milk the cows and sheep. So these guys, these Mongols, are all country bumpkins. They're they're an evil odor. Their clothes are stained. Uh, you know they're smelly. Um, and so eventually, of course, Chinggis Khan then, when he wins over them, and he says basically, he says to Gurbisu, Ah, you thought it was smelly. Now I'm gonna make you. My concubine, and I'll like you know. I will, I will humiliate you um, by making you be the concubine of this, of this smelly guy of the Mongols. Um, so there's a uh, there's a real sense of the Mongols as being, you know, they, they they revel in their image of where where the where the where the poor. Um, you know, the poor, simple folk. Later on, Jamak also says about the Mongols, uh, we Mongols are people who, when they say yes, they mean yes. We're, you know. And again, when you actually read The Secrets of the Mongols in context, it's like, uh, yes, the, the Mongols may have a feeling of themselves like that, but you know what? There's an awful lot of deception going on in The Secrets of the Mongols. There's a lot, again, a, lot, a very awful lot of people, well, maybe not lying, but not telling the whole truth, or, you know, again, keeping their own counsel and not, um, not, uh, uh, not telling, not being explicit about what their re- aims really are.
1: Hmm. Really interesting. Uh, so, sort of along the lines of, you know, the things in the text that are maybe implicit or that are left unsaid, I can imagine would pose real challenges to a translator um, that's so much of, like, as you've said, so much of what's maybe really crucial or important in the text is sort of between the lines. Um, I'd love to just talk a little bit, you know, as we're coming up on the end of our time, just talk a little bit about your work as a translator um, and your translation of The Secret History. Um, and so, you know, I guess I'd like to ask, you know, why publish a new translation? What were your sort of, Goals or aims with this translation? What do you think or hope that a new translation offers to the contemporary reader?
0: Thanks. Uh, thanks. Uh, that's a, a great question. There are three earlier translations into English, um, and there's also lots of translations to other languages. There's been ones in German and to French, from to Russian, Chinese. Um, in addition to the original one, there's also uh, back in the 1380, 1385 or so, there's also modern translation, and there's lots of modern Mongolian paraphrases. The mo- language of the secrets of the Mongols for Mongolians today is you know, a little bit like, say, maybe Chaucer in English, um, uh, and there's a lot of words that are no longer used in Mongolian, so Mongolians paraphrase it. Damninsurin, um, um, the famous. Scholar and poet and Surin, um uh wrote a um, did the, the, the the most famous paraphrase in um, 1947, I think, um, and that's the one that used is used in schools today. And when most uh, Mongolians read the Secrets of the Mongols, that's actually what they're reading. Um, so, um, uh, so yeah, the translation. The question. So, why a new one? Um, partly because it's a very practical thing. I teach the secrets of Mongols and all of the other translations are either out of print or really expensive. Um, So I can't get people to buy them. I can't get the students to buy them. I want them to have a copy of them. That's really
1: going above and beyond for your students.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the other reason, of course, was that over time, as I worked on it, I began to become, there are a lot of little, a lot of little things about the translations, that existing translations that um, bother me more and more. Uh, in terms of little things, one thing is that there's actually uh, as scholarship has progressed, there's a lot of um, the, the Mongolian alphabet is it's an alphabet. It's um, uh, ultimately derived from. Aramaic, um, so it's from the Middle East, but it's an, it's an alphabet. The trouble is it has certain ambiguities, like so D and T and K and G um, are um, written the same, O and U are written the same way. So um, in terms of as we scholarship has progressed, we've gotten a better sense of like exactly how is this name written? Uh, like so Chinggis Khan's father's name, a lot of times people read it Yisuge with a G but in fact, we know it's a, certainly Yisuke with a K, Um So the, the K is in, kind of in modern Mongolia, it becomes a little more H. So there's some changes along those lines. So that was, that was one thing. And sometimes it's a little bit more significant than that. There are certain names that have been like literally not recognized who they really are because they're, they're disambiguated in, in the wrong way. But at a more fundamental level, one of the features of the secrets to the Mongols is First of all, at a a sort of larger level, there is this, you know, implicit knowledge um, sort of thing, things unspoken. Uh, And previous translators, particularly Igor Durakwilts, whose translation in many ways was sort of, uh, it's very helpful for me. I mean, his commentary, he's got this huge two-volume commentary, was something that I was using constantly. Um, despite I, I, I made so many different choices by him, but I want to say that I respect his translation tremendously, uh, and his uh, scholarship tremendously, but he had this sort of attitude that, you know, um, you know, speak out everything that's implicit. I mean, that's what, we, you know, kind of, you know, and I think, and so, and that came in, in little ways and in big ways. Well, so for example, um, one of the Funny thing is that Chinggis Khan's father had two wives. Um, one was Chinggis Khan's mother, Mother Ullin. The other one was this woman who, in the secret history of, of the Mongols, is never named. And um, and that's that's not accidental. This is this is expressed. There's a kind of a a a, um, uh, a um, well, I think the secret historian was really. I uh, really didn't like um, the, <laughs> the mother, the other the other woman uh, in Yisuke's, uh life. Um, and so she's never named. And when she appears, she's given a very um, sort of humiliating appearance, actually. But Igor found in a later Mongolian chronicle what he thought was the name of this person. I actually don't think it is. But he thought, oh, well, I should put that in into the text because, um, you know, it's more complete that way, but that's actually literally that doesn't work because the namelessness is part of the point. So um, the other thing is also *Secrets of the Mongols* has a lot of, um, as I discuss a little bit in the in the afterwards, uh, uh, sort of on, on translating it. Um, there is *The secret of the Mongols* has a lot of what's called linguists call paratactic concatenation. What do I mean by that? Um, it, it's when you put sentences together with and, with semicolons. Um, uh Genghis Khan went, uh, he did this, and then he did that, and then he did this, and then he said that, and then he did this, um, as opposed to hypotactic con- concatenations where you use special phrases to subordinate one clause to another. Because Genghis Khan thought about this, therefore he did that while also doing the other thing in order to achieve his aims. So in that second one I I've, I've given you all the logical con- connections I have sort of I made it explicit for you. And uh, uh, one of the features of now of the Mongolian language um, uh, 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 the history language is that and this is also compared to later Mongolian it's also very hypotactic there's all these logical connections are being drawn if you read some of these uh, later Mongolian um, decrees or um, uh, decrees or um, histories from the 17th 18th century it's very very logical and sometimes you know sort of very complex. But in the secret history of Mongols, it's not like that. It's it's just, it's most and, 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 and. In Mongolian, that's literally what's called the imperfect verb. Um, j verb. J- j- in modern Mongolian, j- in classical Mongolian, it'll be j- 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 the ju ending, which links verbs up um, like that. So comparatively, my translation uses much more paratactic concatenation in English, much more and, 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 or semicolon. I found semicolons were my friend in this one. You um, can put them together very nicely in that sense. It kind of implies logical connection, but it doesn't necessarily mean logical connection. You've got to kind of think it out. And I, I had um, um, uh, Nick Kapoor, who was a, a, a colleague at, um, uh, in... Um, uh, at Rutgers in Camden. He was really, he gave a wonderful read for it. And he was kind of pushing me to be more explicit. Uh, and at some points, you know, I, I, but also sort of, you know, make it more readable for the English reader. And, and I, I, I really benefited from his advice. And a lot of times I did try to do that. But I also felt at certain points, no, I, I, I have to keep this ambiguous. I have to keep this like unclear. So for example, in that passage, I read where Father Munglick says he understood, and then said, you know, from the time when um, the uh, brown earth was a clod from when the, the broad sea was a creek, I've been, you know, I've been in your in your service. Um, understood, understood what? What do you understand? And at that point, you know, it, it, it he understood That I've devoted my whole life to this guy who's eventually going to kill my son without, you know, without so much of the second thought? Or did he just understand my son is dead? Did he understand that I'm, my whole family is going to be enthralled to this sort of um, kind of out of control imperial family forever? Who knows what he understood? That's, but that's the, that's the thing of the text. That's the, that's the way the secret history is, is speaking, is, to not be explicit about that. So I, I, I at that point I just said, I'm gonna just he understood, and I'm not gonna tell you what he understood. partly because I don't really know. <laughs> and nobody you know, in some sense I can guess, but um, I'll let the reader guess along with me rather than tell the reader what the reader should be guessing.
1: That's fascinating. Um yeah, I don't think I would have I don't think I picked up on any of those kind of challenges um, within the text when reading the translation, which I think is a testament to the quality of the translation that you sort of make it seem easy and effortless to produce this translation, although I'm sure it was not. Um, So thank you so much uh, for coming on to talk to me about the secret history of the Mongols and your work translating it. I really enjoyed reading it as a non Mongolianist. You know, it was a very just enjoyable read. But listening to you talk more about it and about your work now, I think really just opened up the world of the secret history even more for me. So thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you, Maggie. It was really, really enjoyable talking with you.